Two things you need to know that aren't in that bio. First of all, he comes to us, he was on pastoral staff. He's ordained through the Summit Church in Orlando, uh, but we're glad to have him with us now. And secondly, for the ladies on the first couple of rows there, he's a former Young Life leader here in the city of Gainesville as well. So just want to make sure you guys know that. So, so Eddie, thank you for bringing God's word to us this morning. Friends, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you on this week after Easter. Um, I am just so grateful to be a part of this family and to be able to spend a few moments this morning reflecting on together the scripture that we have collectively heard in the previous moments. This morning, we're going to dive into the story of Thomas. Thomas, we know there's a song, a bunch of songs, but there's a a bluegrass song I love called Doubting Thomas. I mean, this is what this guy is known as, is Doubting Thomas. And I hope that in the next 30 minutes, maybe we will shift the Thomas narrative a bit to be a little bit more like he's doubting, but he's also a lot like us. That probably won't stick because it's not that catchy, but we understand where I'm going with this. And I have to preface today's sermon with talking a little bit about my uh, job, which is a very boring way to start a sermon. But as I was thinking through the scripture today, um, I kept coming back to stories and people that I've interacted with as a part of this organization that Father Alex just spoke of called International Justice Mission, IJM. International Justice Mission is the world's largest anti-slavery organization. We are an NGO, which means non-governmental organization, but we work both with the U.S. government and governments all around the world. We work in 20 different countries. We have field offices in all of those different countries. And to date, we have been a part of the rescue of 46,000 individuals and the protection of millions of people. Someday, in some future sermon, we'll get into maybe all the nuts and bolts of how IJM works and how we actually go about uh, serving the kingdom through the work of ending slavery. But for now, I will just say that the way we work is we, we work on a very grassroots level, so working with uh, in a, the justice sphere, so we're working with police and lawyers and local elected officials, so we're working on a very grassroots level, and we're working on a very grass top level, so we're working with prime ministers and people that are in charge, very important people. And we work all in the areas in between those grassroots and grass tops to affect systemic change in the entire world and to work to end the problem of slavery in countries that are plagued with violence. Specifically, my role with IJM is that of communicator. So just talk, 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 talk all day long. So I uh, preach at churches all the time. If I'm not here, I'm probably out somewhere preaching at a church in the area or all around Florida about the work of IJM, a podcast I write on their behalf. Basically, anywhere where people need to be educated about the realities of slavery, I am there to go and to talk about it. And in all of those places, I say basically the same things over and over again. I say, there are slaves in the world, God cares about those slaves, and IJM has a plan to end slavery. Will you join us? And in my time with IJM, at speaking at churches, I get a question over and over again. And it's a question that I can answer in my soul, but sometimes I fear as though I'm not giving them a satisfactory answer. The question is, because we're a Christian organization, the question that they always ask IJM is, um, is when IJM is a part of rescuing a, a slave and now a survivor, how do you share Jesus with them? And sometimes they just put it more bluntly and they say, how do you evangelize to the people you rescue? 
It's a fair question. And I know where the question comes from. Maybe you have the same question. Because IJM is an overtly Christian organization. We have to talk about our faith. We get to talk about our faith in, in an interview. We get together at 11 o'clock local time. Every, like every single staff member all around the world, we get together and we pray. It's a very deeply spiritual organization. Yet, we are not evangelical in the traditional sense. Our primary goal is to get people free and to get them into a place where they can be rehabilitated and where they can go back to their community and not be re-victimized. And we believe, I believe, that our work is really the tip of the redemptive sphere. And when I give people that answer, they are somewhere on the scale from wholly dissatisfied to basically neutral. Um, Because if they're asking the question, they're really coming from a place of feeling that the primary purpose, or rather the primary work of an evangelizing Christian is to tell people about Jesus, and they're not wrong but it's also not the entire picture. Because the work of helping people see Jesus starts with showing them Jesus. What's interesting about IJM, and maybe this is the part I should talk about more when I'm answering the question, is that all of the people who are working in aftercare are believers. The people that are like on the IJM staff working in the aftercare facilities. And throughout the course of the survivor's time and throughout them knowing these incredible people, the aroma of Christ becomes apparent to them. And at some point, when our clients start to have questions, our staff is ready to answer them. But the way it starts, and the way it really looks to survivors, and really to us, is that to understand the depth and the character of Jesus starts by witnessing others and their service and their love and their compassion and ultimately their faith. What does it really look like for us to share Jesus? And I'm asking this question because I'm asking it to myself, because this is one of those things that we as Christians kind of check off and say like, yeah, it's important to share our faith. But when it comes down to it, like when we truly take stock of ourselves, how are we sharing Jesus to the world? A new study came out just this week, and it said that a majority of all Christians, when asked, have you shared your faith in the last year? They said, no. And I don't believe that all of those Christians are bad people. I believe it is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to share faith, which is what we're talking about. And more to the point, how do we not only share faith, but how do we show Christ to people? And I'm asking this question because I'm thinking about it. Because I'm a part of IJM, but I don't work in aftercare. I don't work with clients. And so I have to consider what it means for me on a really practical level to take what we heard on Easter just a week ago and what it felt like on Easter. And it was, it was great. I got to be in the band. I have no business being in the band, but they let me be up there. I think they turned my guitar down. But I'm up there. And the best part of it is, is that all of you are facing the front. And so we're playing these songs, and people are clapping, and you see the breadth of emotion. You see joy. You see sadness. You see everything. You see it all happening in the room at one time because we know in that day, and we have this visceral sense, and we just feel it, that death does not have the final say. And we know what Easter is about, that we are called to go and love and do likewise. But how? How do we share Jesus? How do we make last week translate into something that is meaningful for the rest of the world? That brings us to the scripture today, or more accurately, to a portion of the scripture readings for today. You heard earlier the reading from the book of John, and this is actually 
not the last chapter in the book of John. It's the second to last chapter. However, um, modern scholars believe that it actually probably was originally the last chapter of the book of John, and the last chapter that's there now was actually a PS. And the reason I say this is because this chapter is just a definitive stamp. It's one of those moments where if you wanted to end one of the penultimate wonderful moments of all of human writing, right? God breathed scripture, this is how you would end it. It's a masterpiece. And where our reading picked up today is sort of where the story last week left off. Jesus has been crucified, he has defeated death, and now he is appearing here on earth. But now, Jesus is living in this interesting parallel where he is both a citizen fully of earth and a citizen fully of heaven. And the way he manifests himself is fascinating. Initially, one interesting thing, and this is a total parenthetical, is that he walks through doors now. He had all power to open doors or unlock them, but we see in scripture that now he walks through the doors, and I respect that. So, we're going to start uh, in chapter 20, verses 19 through 20, and we're going to think through this together. Here we go. On the evening of that first day, the first week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. We can kind of skip over that for fear part, but we can't. Because the disciples were in a very uniquely scary spot. Jesus, in case you don't know this, Jesus was risen from the dead. But this is only the beginning of the trials for his disciples. In case this is new to you, you should know that when all of this happened in Easter, like last week for us, it was just like a wonderful day. But for them, it was the beginning of a cataclysmic and seismic social and cultural and political and psychological event taking place in the world. To that end, these disciples, this very nucleus, small nucleus of people, were viewed as ground zero for both the starting and the end of this movement of Christ. And so while they were clearly very happy that the stone was rolled away, their work was just beginning. And so to say that they were sitting there in fear is almost an understatement. But that's where they are. They're sitting in this room, and they are afraid. It continues. Jesus came and stood among them through the door. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on this is perfect. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's an incredible amount that happens in this paragraph. But the very core of it is that Jesus was with them, and they were, I'm sure, shocked about this and in complete flabbergasted awe. Then Jesus shows them his wounds, and they melt. I mean, they just completely, everything falls away. And then Jesus literally breathes out the Holy Spirit to them and gives them what they had, at that point, only been able to see Jesus do, which is to forgive. Jesus, in that moment, deputizes his people to go and do his work. Except for Thomas. Because Thomas is not there. And I, <laughs> this isn't supposed to be a funny point, but to me, it strikes me as the very worst missing of a meeting of all time. <laughs> because it doesn't say where he was, but all of his friends were all in one place and all of the world was after him. This was a wretched time for a haircut. But Thomas was not there. 
Well, let's move on. So Thomas is not there, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Thomas says to his friends, Thomas says to the disciples, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I like Thomas's pluck in that moment. Because, again, contextually, we have to understand the situation that he is in. The world and the cosmos and all of creation is buzzing with what just happened. It's not as if he is not hearing about it. He knows that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. Yet even in the following days, he doubts. And not only does he have doubt, but he is really brave and honest. And he expresses his doubts to his friends who are all in. If only we could be so brave. Because I would venture to say that there are people in this room who last week came, did the Easter thing, clapped, home, ham, deviled eggs, watched sports, hang out, go to bed, did the whole thing, right? And deep inside, there's still a lingering doubt. Furthermore, we know that there are people outside of this church, all around our city, all around the world, who have heard about Jesus but take no stock in him. Those people, maybe us, and certainly Thomas, we have been exposed to what is true, but it's hard to cross over even when we know it's true. And it's hard to let something like that really take root in our heart. Brings me back to some time at IJM. One of the interesting things about working with IJM and at IJM is that you learn about captivity and the nature of captivity and the experience of someone who was a slave and who is now a survivor. And in my time at IJM, and actually I learned about this for the first time in my orientation, and it has continued to kind of really blow my mind and uh, resonate inside me. And it is the effect of what happens to people when they are rescued. Because what I assume is that when finally, and how IJM works is really big and complex, but eventually Local police, along with IJM, go in and get these people out of captivity, get them out of slavery. And I've seen the undercover video. I've seen it happen. And you'd think when people are coming out of these brick kilns or coming out of children, coming out of brothels, you would think they would just be saying, yay, I'm so excited. But that is not what happens, or not very often. What's really happening is that they are terrified, and they are now leaving their home. Even though their home was captivity, they are leaving a place, and they had gotten used to those harsh conditions. And that's not to say that the conditions are easy, and it's not to say that they were happy, but this place was home, for better or for worse. Especially for the children that we rescue. This is what they think life is like, which is so crushingly sad, but still, they don't come out of it going, yay, I'm free. They leave going, why are you taking me from my house? Because... The reality of being rescued is a fundamental reality that is hard to understand. The idea of being free is a hard ideal to understand. And while their situation is certainly different from ours, I don't think it's a a stretch to draw a line back to our own psychology. How many of us live lives where we simply cannot believe that there is something better? How many of us have just lost all or some hope? How many people in the world just refuse Jesus 
and that his truth is real and that it is honest and that it is loving because it is just too scary to take a step into freedom. Change is scary. It's scary for me, even if the change is good. And there's a skepticism that things may not really be as good as they seem on the other, on the other side. And so our nature so often is to doubt. And Thomas doubts. And so we get it. Despite the fact that Thomas is standing there in the world with the certainty of the risen Savior standing in front of him, he still says, I don't know. I don't know if I can even dare to believe that something this wonderful has even happened. And I get his mindset. And then Jesus, <laughs> Jesus speaks. And to Thomas's doubt, there is a clear response from Jesus. And by connection, there's a response to our doubt. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside once again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came through the doors and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he looked at Thomas. So he's talking to the group and then he squares up with Thomas and he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put our hands together and place your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. When children and possibly even adults read this account, the first blush is that it's like gross. And I suppose that that can be true. But even in the midst of the gruesome nature of Thomas's touching Jesus's mortal wounds, or I guess in this case, immortal wounds, even Jesus in that moment had to prove that he was more than a historical figure. He had to prove that it was more than just a series of stories and rumors. Even Jesus in that moment had to prove that God was incarnate and he had to take Thomas's hand and he had to prove to him that he was who he says he was. This is where it gets really applicable for us today. Because in our quest to share Jesus, we have to follow the example of Jesus who knew even with one of his closest friends, even with his core group of people, even with Thomas, that it was not enough to simply say that he had risen, but people had to experience it as well. This is why on this second week of Easter, when we know that there are both people that doubt in our midst as well as in our city and all around our globe, that it is not enough for us to sit and be simply content in our own salvation, but to doggedly pursue showing Jesus to the rest of the world. But there's a catch. <laughs> there's always a catch. Because showing freedom takes work. Again, I'm brought back to our IJM clients, and this is the last IJM story I'll tell, but a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to India, and I got to go with a group of pastors, and we got to go see the work of IJM firsthand, and it was overwhelming. We went to Bangalore and Kolkata, um, and just parenthetically, if you ever get the chance to go to India, you should go. It is a beautiful, wonderful place, and um, it just... It's very moving to be there. Um, but one of the things that struck me was I visited an aftercare facility, and we visited an aftercare facility where, just by chance, there were families there, families that, entire families who had been in slavery, and they were working, they were previously working in brick kilns. There was a series of rescues, and now all of these families were living in this place uh, to be restored, both uh, uh, physically and mentally, and, um, and just being able to go back into the world. 
So <clears throat> I'm on the way there and I'm in the bus and like my heart is sinking because I'm like, what am I gonna see here? This is gonna be pretty intense. We're gonna see people that were like all slaves. And when we walked in, we, we walked into this big room that was just like a big rec room and it was the most normal gathering of people. They were all running around there. All the families were playing uh, like this relay race and they were just like screaming and kids were being kids and adults were having fun and it was just silly, great fun. And they were playing this relay race and it was like, you had to answer a question and if you answered the question right, you got to go to the next stop. And the next stop had candy. So you get candy, then if you answer another question there, you get to go to the next stop. And so it's pure bananas. And so we go in there and I'm like, oh, this is, this is lovely. And the person that was helping lead our tour said, make sure you listen to the questions that they're being asked. The title of the game that they were playing called, was called, uh, in, translated into English, it was called, is this a right? And so the questions that they were having to answer is, do you have the right to an education? Do you have your, a right to leave your house uh, and to be safe? Do you have a right to healthcare? Do you have a right to, uh, to keep your own money? These are the questions that they're being asked. And of course, in this room, I, like, I just saw your faces. You're like, of course that's their right. It was a hard game for them. Because in that room, people were genuinely having to search and work together and chat as families to find an answer. Because for so long, they had had their rights stripped from them. And knowing that they were free wasn't enough to help them understand what freedom actually meant. They had to be taught the nature of what it meant to be emancipated. Such is the life of following Jesus. It is not enough to simply know that Jesus is Lord. We must know that Jesus lived principally to show all of us how to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Jesus' life was not about knowing just that he exists. It was about teaching others and showing others what it means to truly experience freedom and to live and love like Christ. Jesus knew this with Thomas. It wasn't enough to just show Thomas's wounds. Remember, that had worked with the other guys. Didn't work with Thomas. It wasn't enough for Thomas. Jesus had to take him by the hand and help him feel the truth. And what happens when Jesus shows Thomas? Verse 29, Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. And then you just, you just know Thomas just, uh, he's eviscerated. My Lord, my God. I mean, he's, he's in. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And so finally, Thomas gets it. It wasn't enough to just be in the room with him. It wasn't enough to just make eye contact. Thomas had to be shown. And of course, Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, says what could, I think initially when I, when I read it, or maybe when we read it, it sounds like a rebuke to Thomas, but it's not. He's not rebuking him. I actually think it's Jesus giving Thomas a very merciful statement as to what it's going to be like for the rest of all believers for all time who don't have the luxury of physically touching Jesus. Jesus says to Thomas, and Jesus really is saying to the rest of us, those of you who don't get to make eye contact with me, those of you who don't actually see a hand, those of you who do not get to be in person with me, bless you. Because your work, our work, is going to be harder. Which is where we pause in the unpacking of our scripture today and consider a moment what this may mean for us in this room. Because this must be more than just a study of Thomas. 
This is Thomas stepping in for all of us and Jesus interacting with him for the benefit of all of us. As I've been pondering this scripture, I've taken away three things about Jesus and Thomas's interaction that I want to share with you. First, Thomas was extremely honest about his doubt, even though he had ample reason to trust Jesus. Are we as honest about our own doubts? Are we able to say honestly that sometimes it is a struggle and sometimes we struggle to believe at all? Because what's important to remember is that Thomas's honesty wasn't met with a rebuke. Jesus met Thomas right where he was at. You are at a church that is safe. You are at a place where if you doubt, that's an okay thing to say out loud. The staff, the Bible studies, all the stuff, the everything. These are people who you can trust and say, I doubt or I don't believe. It's okay to say that. My hope is that if we doubt, we're able to say it. And if someone is talking to us, we're able to receive it in the way Christ did, in a way that was loving and in a way that was present and in a way that was very, very caring. And I hope that when we are in the world and we are carrying the mantle of Christ into the world, when we meet someone who doubts or we meet just someone who plain old rejects, are we as loving? Are we as patient? Are we as hopeful for them as Jesus is? I hope so. The second thing, are we actually doing anything to engage the Thomases in our world? And by that, I mean, are we not just like aware in this moment that people don't yet trust Jesus but are we actually making a volitional effort to share and be the aroma of Christ with those who need proof? For me, uh, I, this, is, this is like now me preaching to myself. There has been an opportunity to meet new people in a different setting that I have been putting off for a long time because I am wildly comfortable being wildly comfortable. I love comfort and it is the best. Yet even as I speak these words, I know that my next step is entering into a place where I'm going to meet some new people. My Young Life friends understand this better than most people. Because I bet a lot of the people who I'm going to meet in this new setting are not believers. And we're going to strike up friendships. And they'll even, maybe, I don't know, maybe they'll ask me about Jesus someday. I don't know. But until that time, I'm going to try and show them through the person that I am that Jesus is more than a set of platitudes. And it is more than even just an invitation to church, though we love our church but it is an interaction with someone who cares for them without giving them some sort of ulterior motive or trying to check some evangelical scorecard. It's a genuine valuing and seeing the other as Christ sees them as beloved. Third thing, and I actually made this point in the last sermon, but it's still on my mind, so here it is again. Do we trust actually that Jesus is seeking after lost people? Because the big mistake that we could make in this season, especially as we last week proclaimed that he is risen, the big mistake that we would make is to think that it is actually our job to now go out and save people. It, of course, is not. An interesting moment in the entire interaction between Thomas and Jesus is actually where the, where, where the seat of power is in that moment, the seat of responsibility, rather. Because we see that the disciples talk to Jesus. The disciples are going to Jesus and that Jesus was alive. Jesus then takes responsibility. Jesus walks through the door and is in front of Thomas, right? And is presenting himself. All of this happened. Thomas wasn't doing anything. He was standing still. And all of these people came to him. But at the end of the day, it was Thomas's decision. 
Thomas could have said that he did not want to touch the wounds of Jesus. Thomas could have left the room in fear. Thomas could have taken a a very callous view of it and found a way to rationalize a way that this was happening. At the end of the day, Thomas made the decision and Jesus was there to praise him and to breathe life into him. Our job as believers is not to save people. Our job is to show them, maybe tell them, but mostly show them that Jesus has risen. Our job is to be there and to be the representation on earth of this God who was and is and is to come. And to that end, we carry on our shoulders an opportunity and a responsibility to put on the characteristics of Christ so that others may see and live. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. There is no one that has run so far from God that they cannot come back and see the wounds in his side and believe that what is real is real. Our opportunity, <laughs> as you laugh or cry right now, <laughs> there's only two choices. Our opportunity as a church is not to be a savior, but to rather live lives that orient even the farthest away, even those with the deepest doubts, even those who reject. We live lives that orient them towards Christ. And then when our friends, like Thomas, finally interact with Jesus, they will know what is real and what is true and what is lasting. And they will know that he has risen indeed. Let us go and love the world as Christ has loved the world. Amen.